Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. The United States government is running a massive student loan program that is really putting a burden on tens of millions of people around this country that makes no sense. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Elshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. So sometimes a new idea is so enormous, yet so simple, that it sounds too good to be true. You mean like the trillion-dollar coin? Yeah, just like the trillion-dollar coin we talked about recently on the show. But what I was actually thinking about today is the idea of eliminating all federal student loan debt in the U.S. It sounds radical, but the idea of debt cancellation goes back thousands of years. It's even in the Bible, which says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. And through history, countless uprisings have occurred with the demand to cancel debts. So it's no surprise the idea upsets many people. But it's also recently gained a lot of momentum. U.S. student loan debt currently sits at around $1.7 trillion. That's a huge number to erase. But because over 90% of student loans are held by the federal government, to some extent this could be done in a few keystrokes. In fact, under the Higher Education Act, the Secretary of Education has the power to cancel debt without going through Congress. There's some debate within the administration about whether a move like that would hold up legally, but Senator Elizabeth Warren, who you heard at the top of the show, is confident that it would be legal. She, along with Senator Chuck Schumer, recently proposed cutting $50,000 in student loan debt for borrowers. Even if you don't happen to be one of the 43 million Americans with an outstanding student loan, putting $1.7 trillion back into the pockets of borrowers could have a huge impact on individual lives and the economy at large. Borrowing money for college isn't new, but in the past, many schools cost a lot less, or they were even free. The whole University of California system, which today serves more than 280,000 students, was basically free for state residents until the 1970s. So the explosion in student debt is pretty new. It really ballooned around the time of the Great Recession in 2008. Jillian Berman covers student debt for MarketWatch. She says a lot of factors contributed to that spike in student debt. The first was simple. Demand for college went up. So during an economic downturn, people tend to shelter in school. So obviously, when you have more people going to school, that's going to push the number up. Another factor was the types of colleges students were going to. For-profit colleges had become extremely popular. Between 1990 and 2012, enrollment in for-profit colleges grew 634%. There was a big explosion in enrollment in for-profit colleges, and for-profit colleges tend to be more expensive, and they often have a poorer track record 
of delivering the kind of outcomes that students like to see when they go to college and when they invest in their education. And so that means if you don't get a job or if you don't get a great job, you don't have as much money to pay the debt back. So the debt just keeps growing. For-profit colleges may offer students greater convenience, but they tend to charge higher tuition, and their students are less likely to have completed high school and are less likely to complete their degrees. But that wasn't the only problem. The cost of tuition at almost all colleges, both public and private, for-profit and non-profit, has gone way up. Before 2008, states were subsidizing higher education much more than they are today. Because states have to balance their budgets every year, the hit our economy took during the recession meant major cutbacks in state funding. And there have been serious long-term effects. Since then, four-year college tuition has risen 25% and student debt over 100%. And while tuition has risen, wages for most Americans have not, making it harder than ever for the typical family to save or pay for college. Families didn't have as much money that they could save for college. It also means that you couldn't really work your way through school anymore, which I think most people you know, know that that's not really possible, but that really accelerated during the recession. And then when students left college, they weren't getting paid as much. So they didn't have as much money to put towards their debt. And so all these things kind of really combined to just tick the number up and up. During the recession, the Fed cut interest rates drastically. In a previous episode, we talked about how the Fed uses interest rates to try to keep the economy on an even keel. Interest rates drop for bank loans, but not much for student loans. Many borrowers were getting access to cheaper credit, but the government wasn't making that same adjustment on student loans. Here's Senator Warren talking about this in 2013. I introduced a bill that would have dropped interest rates on direct loans for one year to the same level at which banks borrow from the federal government, which is currently less than 1%. I introduced that proposal because I believe that the federal government should invest in our students, not just in our biggest banks. The movement to abolish student loan debt didn't start with politicians, though. It began as part of Occupy Wall Street. Then it made its way to economists, academics, and eventually, Washington. Legislation to bring down borrowing costs was finally passed in 2013, and that helped a bit. But today, many people are still paying over 6% on their federal student loans. That might sound like some progress, but consider how low interest rates are today. There are lots of ideas about how to deal with student debt. Here's Market Watch reporter Jillian Berman again. Activists are interested in having it all canceled. Elizabeth Warren talked about having $50,000 canceled. During Joe Biden's presidential campaign, he talked about canceling $10,000. One argument behind those proposals goes something like this. If we actually did eliminate all current student debt, and if all those millions of people weren't spending all that money repaying their loans every month, Imagine what they might be spending it on instead. Stephanie actually did a study a few years ago that we'll talk more about later that shows the potential boost that student debt cancellation would have on the economy. Numerous studies show that student debt has held people back. It stopped them from getting married, having their own family, buying a home, starting a business, or even saving for retirement. Research also shows that the debt, who owes most of that money, 
isn't spread equally. It's a racial justice issue because it's tied to persistent racial economic inequality within our society. Feneba Addo is an associate professor of public policy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her work examines debt and wealth inequality with a focus on family and higher education. She brought up a study from 2016 that surveyed consumer finances. The typical white household had about $171,000, where a black household had about $17,000 in median wealth. So just vastly different amounts of resource to draw upon in order to help and support their children in assisting with paying for some of these costs. So when we talk about crisis, we say it is a crisis if you look at Black borrowers in particular, because they take on more debt to attend, and then they are struggling with the repayment process, struggling in that they have the highest rates of default and delinquency. Others agree that the current student debt situation for Black Americans is a real crisis. We just updated our numbers and found that between 2001 and 2019, the median student debt has doubled in about 20 years, but it's gone up fourfold for Black Americans. That's Louise Seamster, an assistant professor at the University of Iowa. She teaches sociology and African-American studies and researches racial inequality in debt. A few years ago, she and her team looked at the impact of student loan cancellation. The findings weren't what they expected. We were really surprised to see how high the burden of student debt was for even community college. When you're imagining somebody who is going to grad school or somebody who's borrowing for medical school, those borrowers are definitely there. But what you see in terms of student loan balances is probably much higher than you're imagining even for people who are getting or hoping to get a two-year degree. We also know that over 40% of people who have student loans did not get their college degree they went in to get. Without that degree, the student still owes the money for the loan, but isn't as likely to get the kind of job with a salary that would make it possible for them to pay it back. A recent study by the New York Federal Reserve showed college grads on average make 75% more than people without a degree. Combine that with high interest rates and unequal wages, and the goal of getting out of debt can seem insurmountable. Debt-financed college degrees come with a heavy cost, and we also know that Black Americans still pay a higher penalty, that they're still having to compensate for racial discrimination on the job market so that they're paid less even when they do have a college degree. The federal government does not know how much of this $1.75 trillion number is accrued interest. And to me, that would really shift our debate if we knew how much of that very large number was not the initial loan, but the amount of interest that's accumulated on top of it. It would shift conversations where people say, I've repaid my loans. They should have to do that as well, where at a certain point, as the loan balance increases more and more, people can have paid back the balance of their original loan that they took out. But because of interest accumulation, it could look like they've not paid anything at all. A common criticism you'll hear of the idea of canceling all student loan debt is, well, I worked hard and paid off all my student loans. Why should you get off scot-free? Yeah, it's true. I think you will hear people say, you know, I paid off my student loan debt. And, you know, a lot of the time that argument comes from people who will say things like, 
you know, I got a part-time job. I worked in the summer. I worked my way through school, so I didn't take on debt or I had minimal debt. But what they often forget is that tuition was so much lower when they went through college. It's just a lot harder for people today to pay for tuition and living expenses, to earn a college degree, and to come out with a job that pays enough to actually let them get debt-free. What it really gets at is we can't seem to talk about debt without getting into morality. People are very judgmental about the responsibility of, you know, if you owe debt, you need to pay it off or there should be a consequence. It's funny because in German, the word for debt and guilt are the same. The morality card, it is often played by someone who didn't have to worry about paying for college because it was basically free, or they graduated into an economy that was a lot stronger where they got good wages and it was easier to pay off whatever little debt they might have had. It's just harder today. I currently, to date, have over $200,000 of student loans. That's Sabina Zuniga Varela, an actor, director, and producer. She graduated in 2011 with a Master's of Fine Arts in Acting from the University of Southern California, where she's now an adjunct professor. Having this amount of debt in my life is sort of like having what I think will be the longest relationship I'll ever have in my life, because I don't see that it will ever go away. I honestly cannot feasibly see how I will be able to pay off over $200,000 in my lifetime with the field of work that I do, unless I book some major blockbuster movie, which we all know is like going to Vegas and hitting the jackpot. So it just feels like that weird dark cloud that you know is always there. You can go to sleep and forget about it, but then when you wake up, and you're paying your phone bill, or you're paying for groceries, or you're paying off that credit card, you also remember that there is just this huge other chunk of money that you owe. And it just feels a bit engulfing at times. Zuniga Varela has been able to make use of options like income-based repayment. And she said the COVID relief program has been a help, but the amount she owes still looms. If those plans weren't in place, I don't think that I would be working in my field and most likely would have had to completely change careers in order to focus on monetary gain instead of my creative purpose. I'm able to kind of go about my life. But doing that, my interest in capital are still mounting, which is why my loans have almost doubled in the 10 years since I've graduated. And that's just all consuming. We asked Zuniga Varela, what would you do if you didn't have this debt? Oh my gosh, if the student debt was eliminated tomorrow, I would, I wonder if like some of the depression that I deal with on a day-to-day basis may lift just a little bit, but I, I can only imagine that I would just breathe a little deeper and walk a little taller with confidence that I can do what it is I love, what I got the degree for, and be able to just not have this deep just fear that I'm just going to constantly be working to just keep paying other things off. Changing student debt could affect millions of people like Sabina, but how do we make sure that whatever solution we come up with isn't a one-time fix? And what are colleges doing on their end to solve the problem? That's after the break. 
Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Before the break, we talked about how eliminating student debt could both put a lot of money into the economy and go a long way toward repairing racial wealth inequality. Critics say a one-time bailout won't stop the problem from coming back, but more and more colleges are taking the initiative to make their programs more affordable. Some are switching from giving out loans to giving out grants, which don't have to be repaid, and some are going tuition-free. Smith College is a liberal arts school in Massachusetts. President Kathleen McCartney told us that starting this fall, they're getting rid of undergraduate loans completely. We are really doing it for four main reasons. The first is that we want to be able to recruit the best students. And in order to do that, it increasingly means being able to offer students financial aid. We also want our alums to be able to start their careers debt-free, especially since many alums choose to go on to graduate school. Graduate school, that means more loans and more time in school as students pursue their career goals. Our students of color take on debt disproportionately. So for example, 89% of black students receive need-based aid via loans while only 56% of white students do. So this move aligns very strongly with our institutional commitment to racial justice and equity. And finally, I think Smith wants to be a leader in college access and affordability. This whole college started with an access mission, namely access for women. And I think that commitment has really stayed with the college throughout its life. Instead of loans, students will get aid in the form of grants they don't need to repay. Between donor gifts and profitable returns on their endowment investments over the last 10 years, Smith decided they had the money, and this is where they would spend it. I do think that college access and affordability is on the minds of every single college president. And since we have announced our loan program, two other colleges have as well. So I think this is going to be a good trend um, that students are going to see across the nation. Some programs have gone even further, cutting tuition completely. My name is James Bundy, and I'm the Elizabeth Parker Ware Dean of the David Geffen School of Drama and the Artistic Director of Yale Repertory Theater. Entertainment executive David Geffen agreed to give a gift to Yale Drama School that would, starting this year, make the program free for all students to attend. In perpetuity. I think everybody in our community was enormously excited about not only the impact on our current students, but also on the field more broadly and and on students who might not even have considered applying to our school because they would have imagined that it would be unaffordable for them. But the clarity of knowing that a school is tuition-free reduces a barrier for a student not only in practice but also in terms of what they might imagine themselves doing. When I started in the job in 2002, the faculty, staff, and students were all in agreement that the single most important priority at the school was financial aid for students. 
And we wanted to be certain that we weren't setting them back as we were asking them to go into an arts field, right, where employment is uncertain and career paths are uncertain. When you think about tuition and career risk, it makes sense that schools should try to subsidize programs where students are not likely to end up as high earners. A similar gift made Yale's music school tuition-free 15 years ago. But it's not only arts programs that are thinking this way. The Cleveland Clinic Lunar College of Medicine was established in 2002. Christine Warren is Associate Dean of Admissions. Medicine is a high-paying field, but it's a long road before a med student starts to earn a doctor's salary. Warren gives all her students, even the ones with scholarships, the same advice for life after graduation. You need to continue to live like a student after medical school. Before you become a staff and you make a salary that you can start paying back your loans, there is a residency training, and that varies from specialty to specialty. Then there's fellowships that might follow that. So it could be, for some students, even eight years after they graduate from medical school, before they get to a point where they're making a salary that they feel that they can start paying back some of these loans. That's why the school went totally tuition-free in 2008. The decision to go tuition-free, it was part of the mission in the very beginning when the school was established. And really, it is to encourage our graduates to stay in academics, to stay in environments where they're contributing to education and to research. And by making the program a full tuition scholarship, it lifts some of that burden off of our students and allows them to continue their passion. The Cleveland Clinic Case Western program is relatively new, but so far it seems that alumni have stuck to the school's mission. The students who want to stay in research and education won't have to choose a big salary and job security over their interests to pay back a giant loan. We do have a 10-year alumni survey, and specifically what we're looking and asking our alumni at that time is what are they doing currently in their career? Are they fulfilling the mission of the school, continuing research? And over 65% of our students are dedicated and have dedicated time and are involved in research. 75% are educators, are still educating trainees and mentoring the next generation of physicians. So Stephanie, the million or billion dollar question after hearing all of this is, what would really be the impact if this debt is all wiped out? What's the impact on the economy? And I know that it just so happens to be a question you yourself have looked into. Yeah, back in 2018, I was part of a team of economists that actually looked at this very question. In fact, we did a macroeconomic study and published it through the Levy Economics Institute. The study was called the macroeconomic effects of student debt cancellation. And it basically asked the hypothetical question, what would happen to the broader economy if somehow all of the outstanding student loan debt just disappeared? So what we found is kind of, I think, what a lot of people might expect. In other words, if you tell millions of people that instead of pulling out that checkbook every month, and writing a check for two or three or five or $1,200 to pay back student loans, that they could keep the money and use it to do something else. 
So what happens is there's what economists call an income effect. So you've got freed up income every month for as long as you would have been paying those loans off. And then there's also a wealth effect because your net worth is the difference between the value of all your assets and the value of all your liabilities. So if you cancel student loan debt, as much debt as you have is now gone and that increases your wealth. And both of those things lead people to turn around and spend more. Now, they might save more, they might use some of that freed up income to pay off other loans, but what they end up doing is spending an awful lot of money back into the economy. And that in turn supports other jobs. So basically what happened is the unemployment rate went down, the economy grew, Inflation picked up a very small amount, but only in the first couple of years, and then it tapered off. And so you got a better economy without any real negative side effects. And do you think the model would play out differently in 2022 if you did the same work today, since now we're seeing you know, higher inflation and we're dealing with the fallout from the pandemic? It's an interesting question, and I don't want to be the one to have to answer it because it took us over a year to produce that study. Get on it, Stephanie. Yeah, I know. I don't have the free time. But it's an important question. Of course, the economy looks different today. When we published that study, you know, at the beginning of 2018, we weren't in a pandemic. The economy wasn't recovering from a deep shock, uh, like the COVID shock. So, I think, though, it seems pretty straightforward that the big effects would remain true, that freeing people of student loan debt frees up a lot of income, and that people would turn around and spend the bulk of that income into the economy. Now, the inflationary effects might well look different today because we're still dealing with you know, supply chain bottlenecks, and we've got inflation today that we didn't have back then. So I think it's reasonable to think that, you know, the impact would be different, especially with respect to inflation. But I think that the broader economic benefits would still be there. I guess the other question people might ask is, would taxes have to be raised in order to cover the cost of the loan forgiveness? Well, they didn't have to be increased when we did it in 2018. And basically the reason is that we ran these large macro simulations and let the models tell us what would happen if the debt was canceled and taxes didn't increase. And the models told us that the economy would improve and inflation wouldn't pick up. So because inflation didn't pick up, there was no economic reason for tax increases to accompany the debt cancellation. That might turn out to be different if you pursued something like this today or a year from now. You just have to run the models again. It sounds like wiping out the student loan debt that's currently on the government's books could boost the economy and provide relief to many students and their families. But long-term, there would probably need to be some changes in the structure of higher education and in the cost of tuition if college is going to be made affordable for all. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. 
If you like what you heard and you'd like more people to know about the show, could you take a minute to rate it and write us a review? It's the single biggest thing you can do to help listeners discover us. Thanks to Jillian Berman, Feniba Otto, Louise Seamster, Sabina Zuniga Varela, Kathleen McCartney, James Bundy, and Christine Warren. To learn more about eliminating college debt, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch, produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers, and our associate producer is Hannah Libowitz-Lockhard. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Katie Ferguson. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.